You are alive to shine. I'm Beth. And I'm Kate. And this is The Shine Podcast, where we meet lots of different people and hear about the ways that they light up the world. And here's why we're doing this. We've been changed and affected by people who shine with the love of Jesus. And the world needs people like that and like you right now. So be encouraged and let your light shine. And then you've practiced. Do you have to like intern when you get your law degree? Uh, How's that work? I so, you know, you take the bar exam and then uh, you just join as an associate usually if you're going into private practice like I did. You have internships and clerk. They're called clerkships sometimes. So I had a clerkship while I was in law school at several places, one of which was the law firm I eventually went to. But when I graduated in 14, I joined Shoemaker, Loop and Kendrick. It's a bigger firm with offices in several states, but I was an associate uh, shoemaker for four years. You're a partner. I am. So you've been like practicing law for... This is my ninth year coming up. Oh my gosh, we're so old. Isn't that crazy how fast that goes? We are so old. And if I said, what is your definition of social justice? Do you have one? I think I would define it as, I mean, I'm an advocate for... Any number of folks. So, I mean, my job is, you know, I'm a private lawyer. Unfortunately, I can really only help people who can afford us. But I think with regard to social justice issues, so yeah, I, I, have, I have personal experience in representing death row inmates. I have experience representing people. There's always injustices and breach of contract, whatever kind of business disputes I help people with. But I, I think that if I were to give experience or give advice or give my expertise on how I would define my interactions with social justice or at least how I can help people with that topic, if I'm trying to help people, it would be how to be an advocate for folks who cannot be advocates for themselves, right? And how to think at the end of the day, win people over. That's sort of, I think if you distill my job down to its purest Form. That's what I do. I'm paid to win people over either if we're rolling now, if we've already started over, we'll talk about it later. But I would say I spend probably, I think that what I was sort of generally contemplating was helping people with the foundational sort of legal and advocacy components to process social justice issues in this sort of hyper-political, semi-post-Christian society that we live in, you know? <laughs> Say, I had a hearing today in Columbia County, and the vast majority of the time I spent thinking about this was in that car ride to and from that hearing. And I was planning on taking a pretty broad approach. I hope that's okay. God bless you. I, I don't feel like there's a way to talk about it without talking about politics, but in a fair, objective way, you know. Please. So we might have to go there. We might have to trigger some folks. But I feel like, you, I feel like we feel have to get comfortable talking about that stuff, personally. Why are we not? Because I think churches, is churches are scared of alienating half the people who go there. And I think that so sometimes there's a place for that. But I feel like so, – I think I said this last time I was in here. It's, I've seen the products of not talking about it, and people will just go crazy. I feel like if people just learn how to talk about and navigate those things and not get triggered, we could do much better. So I'm going to go there. Do we need to put a trigger warning on oh this? Oh, my I'll gosh. Do, I'll, I'll do a disclaimer. <laughs> you can do a disclaimer. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are – those of the guest and not of the Upper Room Fellowship. Well, sure. Last time I just met Brian. Andy Brian. The one to watch, Brian. <laughs> watch <laughs> out go. for this creep. 
We got a brand new Christmas tree last year. Brand new. Had it up last year and this year. And this year, more than half of the lights went out. Brand new tree. So I spent the entire evening pulling off all of the lights that had been attached to this tree. Last night when I went to bed, I thought I was going to die. Because it was so gross. Like my sinuses, I had a headache. My eyes hurt. My ears hurt. Like everything was dying because of this stupid tree. And I'm not sick, but I'm still 24 hours later. Just save your Pre-lit trees. The same thing happened to me. I cannot figure out for the life of me what happened to it. So I just had to go buy like four extra strings of lights. And it just looks insane now. We just did that. We went and bought a bunch of lights, and Chris was like, I'm going to go hard on this one next year, just so you know. There's going to be so many lights on the street when I put them on. I'm not sick. While I sniff and sniff, I'm not sick. I'm just explaining. My family's perpetually sick, so that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, last time you were on here, you only had three kids. Now you have three point... (laughs) At least eight. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And she's a girl? She's a girl. You know that? You hope that? We do. We know that. We know that. We hope that. <laughs> Sometimes they're wrong. We got the, we did the DNA. So we got the chromosome. We wanted to do it one each way. So Gwen, we did a traditional sonogram. I guess we did for Emma too. But then Leo, we didn't find out at all. And then this one we chose to find out early. Leo was a surprise? He was. We waited till the very end. How long have you guys been married? Oh, gosh. 13 years. That oh, gosh, was not... Because it's been terrible. For <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so I, 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 I got married in 2010, so it should be very easy for me to just do the math. Oh, that is nice. But yet I still struggle. 13 years. <clears throat> you ready? Ready. Is your coffee still hot? Oh, an ember. You see that white light? I know. Is it hot? Heck yeah. It is hot. They're wonderful. And if you connect it to your phone, you can choose the temperature. Like right now, I don't have it connected to my phone app. Do you have to use your phone? No. This is where Hope and I are very similar. I'm like a 90-year-old man. I see, like, phones control things now. Like, I was watching the other day, phone control shower. I'm like, why in the world would you need a a phone (laughs) to control your shower? No. Just get in the shower. I know. That's not the point of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I could talk about that. All right. Merry Christmas. Welcome, Shine Podcast listeners. It's Lily Bet. Oh, it's Katie Bug. That was good. (laughs) That came to me quickly. We are here with Brian Boo. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I like that. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. We are here tonight <laughs> no, no, no. with Mr. Brian Coulter, Esquire, Good. on the topic Juris tonight doctor. of social justice. Thanks for coming tonight. He's You're all welcome. dressed up. Oh, thank you. In his suit and tie. Happy to be here. Brian got his undergrad from Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, with a degree in music business. And then he went to The Ohio State University, where he got his law degree in 2014. After the bar exam, he worked for Shoemaker, Loop, and Kendrick for four years as an associate. When he moved back to the area, he got a job with Browse and McDowell. He's been there for three years. He's been a partner there for the last... One year. Yep. Brian was on the Shine Podcast, Season 2, Episode 28. So if you missed that, check that out. You'll hear about his personal story. He was named Best Lawyer in America, One to Watch list. That's how I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm calling it. A Cali Award for Excellent Achievement. Oh, man, we're going back to the Cali Awards. I forgot that that was <laughs> Go in, go He's in, a- back, back. 
to Cali. Cal- Sorry. The Columbus Business Journal named him a rising law star. He was one of 24 lawyers in Ohio to be accepted into the Ohio State Leadership Academy. He was the president in 2021 of the Mahoning Valley Young Professionals. He's aged out of that. But he was also in the top 25 under 35 for Mahoning Valley. Brian has been married to his wife, Hope, for 13 years. Last time he was on the podcast, they had three kids. They're up to 3.8. Baby number four is on its way on her way, can I say that? You can. It's a secret. It's public information. Baby number four is on her way in March, and Early we're happy March. to have you. Thank you. Here in the podcast room Ooh. tonight, talking about social justice. Oh, yeah. Brian yeah. has a trigger warning for everyone. You know, we're, we're going to trigger some folks. I mean, the whole point of the discussion, hopefully, is to encourage folks not to get triggered. But right. uh, I think that it's very hard, frankly, impossible to separate discussions on social justice from politics. You just can't do it in my view, right? I think if you identify a political movement and if so, you know, for instance, I were to say that uh, I'll give you an example. If someone were to walk into our church with a Black Lives Matter shirt on, I think if we all did bet our houses on how that person votes, we probably could. Right. That's just sort of what I mean. I don't think you can talk about these things without talking about the political sort of undertones with them. And I think that's fine. We just all have to be patient and kind and gracious enough to to navigate that. So hopefully we don't trigger people. But I think you have to work through those choppy waters to understand each other. Yes. That's good. To understand each other. Jesus told us to love everybody. Right. And there's not a lot of listening that happens all the time nowadays. No, there's not. <laughs> there is um, You know, there's the uh, culture war. I think a lot of, I know, I, don't, I know you'll have questions for me later. This is sort of baked into it. But I think a lot of worshiping of ideology. I think we idolize ideology in a lot of ways. I think Christians in particular can sometimes allow their faith to get intertangled with or sometimes just frankly sit secondhand to politics. And what's sort of awkward, not awkward in the sense that, like, I'm all cards on the table. I'm an independent. I consider myself a pragmatist. There's a lot of things that I lean what would be considered right. There's a lot of issues I lean what would be considered left. But when you're having these conversations in the context of the church, it kind of feels like you're really talking to one side. Because at least here in Ohio, the other side is just not church. So it's like there's a lot of things that I have to say and a lot of criticisms and a lot of things that I think need to be addressed by people who are, especially young people who align, see themselves aligned very far left. But a lot of those folks have just left the church. And I think part of that is because of these social justice issues. I just think that if our job is to bring Jesus' love to people as we know it, which is unending, undeniable, uh, who wouldn't want it, right? If, if our job is to bring that to as many people as we can and our, or we, who wouldn't want to share it, we just lose so many bodies, I think, at that intersection of religion, politics, social justice. I think where those three things collide is where we lose just a ton of people, uh, a ton of people that I think that Jesus doesn't want to lose, obviously, and we shouldn't as church, but it's just we draw very early lines in the sands about non-issues. I think I talked about that briefly in my last one. And I don't know. I think it's a very important topic. I wish I had the expertise in one particular area enough to dive into it. But I hope that my just general experience as a lawyer and an advocate can sort of help 
people as they wrestle with these issues? Because I think it's all of our responsibility to sort through the mess that can be those three topics, Mm -hmm. politics, social justice, and religion. So we brought you on as a our resident expert in social justice, and sure. we're, we talk about having 10,000 hours in a field to be considered an expert in it. And Brian has well over that. He's probably working on 20,000 hours in this field. And so, Brian, tell us how you got involved in this topic, what brought the passion to it, and... Sure. You know, I definitely did not plan on being a lawyer. I went to Belmont University. I wanted to be a music producer. But it was somewhere around, well, it's a combination of me being bad at music generally, but also to oh my gosh, stop. getting involved in the legal side of that industry. And then Belmont is, a, you know, it's a Christian-affiliated school. I wouldn't say it was all this. I was definitely leaning toward law school. But one of the things that I just found really interesting was uh, we had to sit through convocation credits. And I had to, which basically, they didn't have a chapel. They just had like hour-long seminars. You had to listen to many TED Talks about Christian things or just, you know, community things. And it was, at the time, it was human trafficking. That like I, being from Columbiana, this would have been 2009. And now everyone knows what that is. But then it was like I didn't really ever think about that. And sitting through a lot of these seminars on how huge of a problem human trafficking is and how it's pretty prevalent in Ohio. And then we had a a gentleman come in who was from India, and he talked about the caste system there. And he brought – remember, he gave me a clay cup, which I still have. It's on my desk. But even though I I believe formally there's – formally there's no longer a formal caste system in India, but I believe there's still just the remnants of that. I believe it's the term's delete. Is that right? Maybe, I don't know if either of you know this, but he essentially came from the lowest of the low caste systems where they are forced to drink out of clay cups. So that way when he's done drinking, it can be smashed on the ground because it's considered unclean for anyone else to use after him. Things like that. I remember Bob, Bob Goff came and talking about what he did at the time and just really sort of getting interested in, in those social justice issues, and that was always sort of the the part. 1A was I was just interested in the law. It was a good way to provide for family, a good way for me to be able to move home because music business is so limited geographically where I could do that at the time, and not so much anymore. But, but 1B was while I'm making a living, I also want to do what I can to help the community and be involved in social justice issues. So I think that was really what got me into it. You know, I moved back to Columbus, or Ohio, went to Columbus for a law school. Yeah, just even the, the, the learning methods. So it's all Socratic. You know, you, you get assigned 50 pages of reading. You say it's five, 10-page cases. The teacher walks in, says, Mr. Coulter, summarize the facts in this case. And you summarize it. And he says, what are the, you know, you summarize the facts. And the professor asks, what did the court hold? You give them the court holding. What was the reasoning? And they'll ask questions as to why it didn't go a certain way. And you're expected to just always be prepared and always know the answers and deal with the shame and embarrassment if you don't. And <laughs> it was just very intense, very, very competitive. I started out, there's sort of a mandatory curriculum with law school. You have to take your criminal law where you learn about the history of the criminal law and the moral dilemmas from, you know, centuries ago in England. I mean, we brought over our entire body of government, our entire body of a lot of our jurisprudence from England, right? So I remember one of the earliest cases I studied in law school was, I cannot remember the name of the case, but essentially it was well-respected men in the community. I believe it was three of them, two men and uh, like a teenage boy, went out to sea and uh, got lost at sea, essentially. 
and the boy was by far the, the sickest among them. And they're all on the verge of death, but the boy was the sickest. And the only two way the men could even potentially survive was to kill and eat, dark as it sounds. Cannibals. Resort to cannibalism for the sickest person who in their mind was without question going to die. And it worked. He died. They ate him. They survived. But when they got back, they were charged and sentenced to death. And so just engaging in those moral discussions, again, it's all Socratic where you're, you have to take sides and, and just process those things. It really just reshapes the way you, you think. I mean, they, they say that all the time in, in the practice of law. Law school is about learning how to think like a lawyer. It's not about really a whole lot more than that because you get out and you just don't really know anything. The practice of law is completely different. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's versions of that. And everything, whether it's constitutional law, I mean, that was a, a, another huge, very educational class for me, just learning about the history of our Constitution and the development of the jurisprudence in certain areas, whether it be equal protection clause, um, due process issues. I mean, it's just, there's so much of it. Um, and so, you know, three years in law school, studying, um, working, taking the bar exam, and then I, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to, what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. Um, but after my first year, I, I got a job with a well-known trial tor- attorney in Columbus named David Axrod. Very intense and demanding person, but also one of those people that once you get to know him, you realize they kind of have a gooey center in there, deep in there, <laughs> but there's a gooey center. Um, and he just sort of took me under his wing. And then by the time that I graduated from law school, he was at a shoemaker, the the, the big firm that I joined. And uh, yeah, he just brought me on. So um Actually, what I helped him do when I was helping him after my first year, we prepared a habeas petition, which is a legal mechanism often used in death row. It's a basically last resort filing for folks who had their trial, had their sentencing, something happened, you file a, a, it's a 2255 or 2254 petition. And you um, basically take one last Hail Mary to get them out or to get a new trial or something. And I helped him prepare one of those. And they're, I mean, they are truly Hail Marys. Their success rate is below 1%, if I had to guess. And we actually won it. And so that was probably dumb luck, but he also attributed that win to my help. And so he hired me. Yeah, I just stayed at Shoemaker. I did uh, almost all commercial litigation, uh, environmental litigation, a lot of complex high dollar value disputes between companies usually for four years then yeah we had you know had a kid wanted to move home and I, I still do a lot of that I do a lot of insurance recovery work now which is uh, representing policyholders against their insurance companies which is actually in the practice of law one of the very few areas where there's little guilt because I'm not suing you know it's not mom and pop versus mom and pop it's suing insurance company which mostly screw people over so the fact that I can uh help with that is always pretty rewarding. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I've definitely spent more than 10,000 hours reading, writing, advocating. It's probably, like you said, probably close to 20, if not north of 20 by now. I mentioned this before, but I've always been a litigator. I've always been a, an advocate. And I think if I had to summarize what I do on a daily basis and what I think I'm truly an expert at, more so than any one discrete area of social justice. It's just advocacy and when winning people over. Sometimes that's in court, right? Winning over a neutral judge is indifferent, but a plaintiff comes to him or her with a case against a defendant, and he or she or a jury has to decide who's right and who's wrong and who should be rewarded, whether it's damages or some sort of equitable 
remedy. But more than that, much more than that, I'm usually advocating and trying to win over an adversary, somebody who actively is against me because I'm trying to avoid litigation. It's expensive. And so I'm almost always on the phone with somebody trying to get them to part ways with property or their money and come to some sort of middle ground where it works for everybody. And I think it's a, it's a valuable skill set. You have to know your audience and know when to use certain things. Hope doesn't like when I lawyer her, so um, <laughs> I get accused of that. Although I do drop some phrases on her every once in a while from the office that she does not like. Just a little pro tip you guys can take home and cut this out. I'll say, like, it's either a sword or a shield, right? I, also, I say that all the time. That's a legal phrase where it's like, if I did something and you didn't like it and you criticized me for it, you use that as a sword. But when you later do what you criticize me of... You don't get to say, well, you did it. Like, no, 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 no. You attacked me at the time using it as a sword. You don't now get to use it as a shield, right? <laughs> it was either wrong then, and it's wrong for both of us, or it's right now, and it's right for me then. Pick your one, right? Oof. It's a sword or a shield. So, a little marriage little, tip little, there. A little tool for you. I mean, she gets mad. <laughs> I was going to say, she gets marriage mad. tip? Hmm. Not a marriage tip. Arguing tip. What not to do? Not a marriage tip. <laughs> but she, no, she's accustomed to it now to where she says it to me sometimes, and I go, dang it. Oh, You're right. <gasps> oh, so she's picked up on a few. The student has become the a little master. bit, a little bit. I like that. So, when did you know that you were passionate about this topic? It was definitely somewhere in, in college. I think that being from Youngstown, right? Maybe not. It's just a Youngstown thing. Going to a school like Belmont, I always grew up here feeling like you know my dad was a, a chiropractor. We. We're not, you know, we were comfortable. We, uh, I never felt wealthy. I never also felt poor. I never felt below even average. I just, you know, I never really grew up thinking about it. But then I feel like Belmont was the first time that I saw how other people live and where they come from and thought like, oh, I don't, I don't think my family was as well off as I might have thought we were. <laughs> like I, I'm seeing friends here drive in with their, you know, luxury cars and their college students and their parents paying for everything. And I don't know. I just feel like there's a, a healthy inferiority complex that comes from being from part of it's just being from this area, mm -hmm. but also going to that environment where like you're okay. It's at that time, in my mind, like, that was the show. That was the big time. This is where I wanted to be. And realizing, like, these people had a lot of advantage. I thought, like, everything's relative, right? Like, I know I had advantages over a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But it just puts kind of a scale on it when you go to a place like Nashville or, I'm sure, New York or L.A. where you're like, totem pole's a lot bigger than I thought it was, and I'm a lot farther down it than I thought it was. <laughs> and I feel like for me, that was where I think the inferiority complex sort of kicked in, and I started really just the contrarian sort of wanting to fight for the small guy. I have a lot of great, great friends there, and they come, you know, they can't help where they come from, just like I can't help where I come from. But I think something about that sort of triggered me to just fundamentally change career paths and do something different and helping people who could never in a million years be in a place like that. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. You know, you had to get out of your comfort zone. Right. Home, home was your comfort zone. Get into a different environment, and then you're like, wow, it's a little different the, the here. Scale, it, I mean, honestly. It brings like, out something in you that maybe you would have never thought about before if you weren't right. in that environment. If you didn't leave. And I, I I mean, I still think that way. Like, even, you know, being in Canfield, like, growing up in Columbia, I was always like, oh, those Canfield people. <laughs> and now I'm, a can, now I'm a Canfield person. But, like, every once in a while, I'll still encounter the kind of person who's a little snobby. I'm like, listen, we're in we're in Canfield. 
Like, you think that, like, we're in Cayfield. I'm telling you, like, we're in Cayfield. Like, <laughs> we're saying the same thing, but very differently. Like, some humility. That for me was just sort of very eye-opening when you come to a place where it's people from Texas and L.A. and New York and Australia and wherever else. You just, that to me was almost just as educational as any, like, actual class is just being thrown in that environment. You get a better scale for the world and your place in it when you're in a place like that. I think the same thing is probably true when you travel and you go somewhere very depressed. I just was surrounded by rich friends and I was like, you guys are bumming me out. That's fascinating to me because I feel like you do. You can get perspective hitting cities like Nashville, like you're saying, like LA. I don't feel like I've spent a lot of time in big cities, but I've spent time in the slums in Mexico. Right. And on both ends, you get these perspectives of ridiculous wealth or ridiculous poverty on both ends and the desire to. There's just something in you that has this desire to see. Right. Become. compresses the spectrum. Right. But I mean, like, you feel like you want to see that. You want to see the impoverished move up the totem pole and the really wealthy move down the totem pole. So everyone, I'm definitely not for, like, everyone must have the same. We are. But there is something in you that's, like, want to see the better for them. Yeah, you don't realize how far away you are from truly wealthy people and how far away you are from truly poor people. You right. Know, you just don't, the, the magnitude of the scale. So it can cut both ways. I mean, I think if you do realize that scale, generally it should help your perspective because right. any arrogance you might have had, you'll be like, oh, I'm not up there. Mm-hmm. And then you look at how truly poor some people can be and you should be very grateful you're not down there. Right. But yeah, I just think people get tunnel vision and just choose not to look at those ends of the spectrum and think, I'm awesome, or just generally get greedy or turn into monsters. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. This is outside. I'm not an expert on this. But you have learned things. So apart from maybe that revelation where you're looking at yourself and saying, I am here on the totem pole, that's a revelation of kind of like where you are. But what are some other things that you've learned about the subject? I feel like if I'm talking on social justice or even just general legal issues, and these are somewhat ranked in order of importance, but I think and they may seem very obvious but I feel like if we're if we're trying to follow through on the goal of as a church family trying to retrain ourselves to have conversations and not lose as many people as I think we lose on social justice issues, I think the first thing anyone needs to recognize is everything is way more complicated than we think it is. I think just as a practical matter. And I think yeah. there's versions of that, I'm sure, in the medical field and just about every field, right? And theology is the same way, right? Someone reads a, you can take a very fundamentalist perspective on a, a verse and just say, it means this. But like, that's been translated. It's been through three languages. There's a whole lot of context there that you're neglecting. And the law is the same way. And I think that we have a soundbite culture. People read something or they see something on the news and they just make a black and white judgment because, like, again, you know, it's the blinders. The world's less scary if I understand everything. And so I'm going to make a snap judgment. It's simple. This is how I fall on that very simple issue. And almost every time, there's just so much more to it. And so I think my first, the first thing I've learned is if you read something or see something or hear something, you need to read at least five articles from various sources, maybe sources that we wouldn't necessarily go to, to get a well-rounded opinion on what it is, right? If you just take the headline at, at its face value, you will think that the end of times are upon us because this terrible law is going to affect your life. And so any minute you spend retweeting or sharing it on Facebook is just a colossal waste of your time and energy, and it's just bumming you out, and it's feeding into the hyperpartisan culture war. 
Yeah, I, I just think that's sort of step one is just know the limits of your knowledge and know when is time to get worried about something and or research something more. It's not just lawyers that would say that, right? I'm sure every doctor ever has been like, oh, great, this person, WebMD, does going to tell me what they have again. <laughs> I'm dead. I totally agree with you. Like when people, they hear one thing or see one headline and right. you're just like, oh my gosh, we need to do more research on our own and, well, and particularly react. Right. Particularly in the field of law, what frustrates me is, I mean, we have the court of public opinion now. Culture always overcompensates. And so you have a lot of really rash judgments being made in the court of public opinion based upon evidence that's inadmissible in a court of law. So, right, there's there's an entire rule book of evidence about things that you are allowed to bring in and show to a jury and those things that you're not allowed to bring in and show to a jury, a lot of which is, you know, hearsay. There's the general rule against hearsay is you cannot bring in an out-of-court statement and offer it for the truth of the matter asserted, right? So if someone made an out-of-court statement and you're relying on that, you need to bring them in and they need to make it under oath or else it's just deemed, it's deemed so inherently unreliable that it cannot be used in a court. So when I, again, trigger warning, but a, a lot of discussion in the past few years about election integrity and a lot of Christians feeding into that and, and reading articles about things like that, even though every court in which one of those arguments has been presented, I think with the exception of one very small, like 200 vote block or something has been thrown out. A court, a judge of both parties, didn't matter, looked at the arguments and the evidence and said, not worth my time, get it out of here because it's deemed so unreliable. It's things like that where if you don't have the legal foundational knowledge to realize what's just someone saying something because out of court you can say whatever you want and a lot of people even in court say whatever they want they just don't care about perjury or telling the truth or swearing on a bible but just having that restraint and patience to not rush to judgment so that's my first know what you don't know and realize that everything's more complicated generally tied into that Number two, I would say realize that you're biased because we're all biased. Every single person on the planet is biased. If you say that you're not biased, you're wrong. You are biased. The goal is to try to not be biased and to recognize, I think, cognitive dissonance and what that means. It is essentially the equivalent. It's the, it's the mental equivalent of sitting on a couch and looking over and seeing your, your dusty treadmill and realizing I probably could be a whole different person and change my life if I just use that thing as much as I use this couch, but I'm really comfortable on this couch and I don't want to do that. It's the mental tension one feels by holding contradictory opinions and beliefs. And this is, it's biology. I mean, it, your brain is designed to resort to the quickest path that will resolve that inconsistency. Mm -hmm. That's what's causing your bias. And so as applied to social justice issues, right? So say, for example, I grew up in a small town. My father was a police officer, man of honor, a hero in the community. And I've only ever grown up to think of law enforcement in that role, being heroes, being protectors, and people that should be honored, right? If I see articles about police killing George Floyd or police racially profiling or an arrest that may have been without probable cause or provocation, regardless of what anything says, my first instinct call is going to be, they asked for it. Whoever's getting arrested asked for it. That's going to be the knee jerk. That's going to be what your bias leads you to do. And we, and we all have it. Uh, I just think that you have to be conscious of it and be open to nuance if you're going to develop the ability to have meaningful, open-minded conversations on social justice. It's easier said than done. I'm not good at it. I make snap judgments all the time. I think a very 
common one, again, in the Mahoning Valley is particularly with a lot of more recent social justice causes, I think particularly, you know, LGBTQ community, there's the perception or the very, I see it a lot in really a lot of generations around here, very snap judgment. So what? You know, we're from Youngstown. Our life's been hard. My dad worked in the mills. We've been kicked down, knocked down. Our entire life, we pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, and we don't want anyone to feel bad for us. We're hard workers. We work our way out of it. I think that's just, that mentality is ingrained in a lot of people in Youngstown, right? That's how you view the world. And so when you hear people, it's not coming from a, I don't think the, the pushback doesn't necessarily come from a place of these people are lesser than or anyone is uh, inherently evil. It's just purely a stop whining mindset. And it's, it's perceived as something more sinister than that. <laughs> But I, I see that all the time. It's just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I did. And it's, it's just not the open-minded, slow, contemplative consideration of why can't they do that? Are there barriers that are stopping certain groups from pulling their, themselves up by the, the bootstraps, right? If it's a socioeconomic thing and getting a different job, that's a little bit different than perpetually profiled. It's those inherent biases, that I think, in getting past that initial snap judgment. A lot of it's that that's what cognitive dissonance is. I'm not going to get past that snap judgment, the, the conversation of pronouns or, or whatever it is. That sounds like whining to me. That sounds like a very small problem. I don't care. And when you stop there, you're letting the bias and you're letting the cognitive dissonance win, in my view. It's not to say that you have to change your mind. It's not to say that you have to give away your morals or agree with the other person, but you owe them the dignity and the time of more thoughtful consideration than that. So that's two. And again, these are very squishy things, but I just feel like it, it's advocacy at the end of the day. I think that to tie it back, I've had more success by approaching adversaries. If I'm in front of a, a, a neutral it's a little different. I'm going to be very confident in my approach. I'm going to say, this is the law. Judge, these are the facts. I am right. They are wrong. That's one thing. But 90% of what I do is not that. It's working with an adversary and telling them, this is the law. You're wrong. I'm right. And I'm going to win does not get me much traction usually ever. Most of the time, I honestly, when I'm negotiating with other lawyers or other or business people, I usually say, I'm not even like going to waste the time talking about like my legal positions because like you're just going to disagree with them. You don't have to spend the time talking about yours because like it's just not going to get us anywhere. It's almost usually always very practical considerations, but it, the, the winning approach almost exclusively is one of I'm not here to dominate you. I'm not here to tell you you're wrong and I'm right, even if I think I'm right and I think you're wrong, because you're not going to, in my context, give me or my client what it wants. It's just not how you win people over. And it's not rocket science. I feel like we were all sort of raised, you win more bees with honey than vinegar. But by going in, by acting like you know everything, right, that's my first point, that does not work. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're if you're humble, you say like, hey, I'm just getting my arms around this. And maybe what you're saying is true. I don't know. I need to look into that. The humble approach is a better one, almost always. And then bias, right? Recognizing, if I make what I think is a good point, I'll say, I don't expect you to believe this, right? I, I, I don't expect you to just go with what I'm saying, but this is our position. I'm sure you have your own. And just deflating those initial barriers of, of course I'm biased, I'm a hired gun, I'm a advocate, and disarming people by acknowledging your, your biases and acknowledging that you don't have all the information goes so much farther than the alternatives. I feel like those two are just sort of preliminary, probably obvious things. I feel like actually stepping into social justice, I would say that there are historically and existing structural barriers for certain segments of the society. 
It's just true. Structural racism, structural sexism. There are remnants of policies decades ago, centuries ago. Don't just go away overnight. It's okay to admit that. And by doing so, you're not admitting that America is some terrible country. You're not any less patriotic than you were the day before you admit, admitted that. But I, I think there are a lot of folks who think that if they enter into the social justice arena, that they have to acknowledge that America has all these flaws. Our, our government has all these flaws. And you know what? I'm a veteran or I'm a lifelong conservative or I'm a proud of a American and I can't acknowledge those things. I just think they're, they're not mutually exclusive. And on the other hand, you have a lot of people, again, I don't think these people are listening to this podcast or frankly even in church, who think that America is so fundamentally broken that it just should be started. We should start over. There are people who truly think that our systems are so prejudiced and unfair and benefit the rich or the, the elite or just men or just white people that America is the worst place. And that's way off, way off. You can acknowledge the existence of structural barriers and still think that this is a great, great country and be very proud of it. And it's not conceding any aspect of your patriotism or faith to do so. Examples of that, and you know, I don't know how familiar either of you are with like the practice of gerrymandering. That's a, that's a big one, mm -hmm. right? So the, the principle of one person, one vote. Racial gerrymandering is against the law, but political gerrymandering is very close proxy for racial gerrymandering. Anyone's not familiar with that term, essentially it's the practice of drawing voting districts in a way that either gives one voting block an advantage or a disadvantage, right? And so you can creatively draw voting districts back in the day. I mean, the, the most overtly illegal version of this was putting entire black communities in one voting block. You know, historically, this is a sort of just general statement. I'm sure there, there may be more recent data that contradicts this. I doubt it. But historically, black and brown communities vote overwhelmingly Democratic, right? Low socioeconomic levels overwhelmingly vote Democratic. And so through sort of the through the years, it's now clear you, you can't gerrymander based upon race, but there's very much political gerrymandering. And like I said, there, there's pretty well-proven proxies there. So even though you say you're not doing it based upon race, you're kind of still doing it based upon race, or you're kind of still doing it based upon socioeconomic status. And so, yeah, there are parts of the country where folks can feel like they don't have a vote because their congressional district has been drawn in such a way as to intentionally minimize their vote. You know, it's part of the reason why the Electoral College has been criticized so heavily lately, right? Because you've seen such disparities with that. And there's a value to the Electoral I'm not digging on that at all. It's just and when you dig into voting rights, which is in itself a social justice issue, giving people the access to vote, that comes up a lot. And I think, again, you know, it, it's hard to pin it on one side. And again, it just boils back down to it. There's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than people think it is. And also, too, I mean, there have been... Studies. I was actually just reading a study the other day about traffic stops. I think it's, I think it was Stanford. It was a fascinating study where they pulled police records from, I think, multiple jurisdictions. I mean, millions of police records. And they pulled every police record of a person getting pulled over at 7 p.m. They did that because for half of the year, it's light at 7 p.m. And for half the year, it's dark at 7 p.m. They wanted to see, because there's been this sort of principle called the veil of darkness, that Black and brown folks are less likely to get pulled over at nighttime because you can't tell their race when it's dark outside. What they found is that the data actually supports that. When it was 7 o'clock and dark outside, there was less, uh, a smaller number of black and brown folks getting pulled over than when it was 7 p.m. and light outside. And again, I don't think that that necessarily means, you know, it doesn't mean that all cops are racist. Of course they're not. But some are, the same way some lawyers are. 
and some preachers are and some executives are. So there's racists in every profession, just not all those carry a gun around and are in charge of stopping people and searching people. And so I don't, I don't know how many numbered items I would have on this list, but I just think that what it comes down to, like earlier when I was talking about people, I think, idolize ideologies, let their ideologies infiltrate they don't know where worshiping God and worshiping Jesus and worshiping their ideology <laughs> starts and ends. I just think there's this knee-jerk reaction of it's mutually exclusive. I'm pro-cop or I'm Black Lives Matter. I am pro-life or I'm pro-choice. I am immigration hawk. I'm hard on immigration or I'm for the folks who are trying to get into the U.S. to, to better their lives or get away from whatever they're fleeing from in South America. And it's just really, those are false dichotomies, in my experience. You know, the way I view it, this is more prevalent in Columbus, but, you know, people have their, their rainbow flag out front or their Black Lives Matter flag out front or their, their thin, it's a thin blue line mm-hmm. with the police flag. And in my view, like, I don't, have, I don't have this, and I think it'd be weird to make one, but I just want to have just like a flag with just like a cross on it. Maybe that means something weird that I don't know yet, so don't do that, because if I Google it and that turns out to be like a cult or what something. What does that mean? Yeah. But I just feel like if, I feel like if you fly the flag of Jesus— if you empathy above everything, which I think is your obligation as a Christian and when entering into these conversations, you can be simultaneously empathetic with the black or brown man or woman who just feels like they are constantly getting pulled over and put into situations based purely on the color of their skin. And you can simultaneously empathize with the police man or woman who puts on their bulletproof vest and kisses their family goodbye and hopes that Today is not the day that something terrible happens, right? Those are not mutually exclusive things, but our culture tells us we have to pick one. I think that a lot of particularly left-leaning folks aren't in church as much. So it's, it's largely, by default, the conversation toward conservative Christians are just tricked into thinking they have to pick these sides when they don't. And I think that's why we lose a lot of bodies. It's because we tend to sometimes fall into the trap of idolizing that ideology. I think sometimes when you put yourself, you talk about empathy, but when you put yourself in situations where you are around people who are different than you, that grew up different, if you don't put yourself in situations where you're around people that Mm -hmm. grew up differently than you, look different than you, or have different beliefs, it's very easy to demonize people. But when you start rubbing elbows with people, you realize that we all bleed the same color and there's a lot more in common than... Well, not it's yeah it's really easy to get enraged at a straw man right and that's i think what a lot of news culture tries to create for us is to get angry at a boogeyman that does not exist but you know hope and i living in, in nashville and columbus we've had friends who've had to use planned parenthood not for an abortion for things like ectopic pregnancies and other things and going there and dealing with protesters and people screaming and those people have no idea what these women are going through I mean, that for me, I, I remember like her, a friend of ours talking to Hope about it and just being like, man, we're really screwing some stuff up. We just, we really are. It's like a completely tone deaf mm. approach. That's just not what the love of Jesus looks like, right? It's not to say that we throw away what we think is righteous or to throw away what the Bible tells us to protect. But again, going back to my parallels in my practice, I couldn't, be, I can be dead right on the facts. I can be dead right on the law. But if I just go in and act like an arrogant jerk, you would be surprised at how that affects my success rate. I've gone up against lawyers who have been right. They have been right. And I have been right. No, I, so I know I have a weak case. I've won arguments and negotiations and cases based purely on personality. So much of life is half substantive skill and half communication and personality. And you can be the smartest 
person in the room. It just it just does not matter how right you are if you don't handle things with grace and, and approach. I just think that that's a very important, again, sort of foundational step as folks in our church family contemplate social justice issues. That's good. So, Brian, tell us what advice you have for for our listeners on ways that they can support others in their lives that have dealt with injustice. I would say this is a tricky question. I'm going to lawyer this question a little bit because I think one of the biggest barriers to this is folks having different ideas of what constitutes an injustice, right? I think there's a lot of people in church who would hear somebody, probably someone who has rejected Jesus and is no longer in church, maybe it's a family member, son or daughter, someone else complain about an injustice and think that's not even injustice, you're just a sinner or you're just a whatever else. I think that first, just put aside your own definition of whether or not this person's problem constitutes an injustice mm-hmm. and listen, first of all. Just listen to the other person and um, be a helper. It's amazing what you can accomplish by just listening to a person and just saying, what can I do? I know that's, again, that's not exactly high-level guidance, but... Sure is practical. It is practical. Mm-hmm. And um, there's just... I, I think it's a product of social media and our culture where everyone feels like their opinion is relevant at all times and is valuable at all times. I have a Twitter, so I'm just going to say this now, and the world ought to hear it because I have to say it. And I think it's sort of mutated our brains to think that, like, any time's a good time to talk about our opinion on someone else's problem, whatever else. And I just think it's generally no. I think that's actually the opposite. Someone comes to you and says, this has happened to me. I'm ashamed or sad or angry. I think keeping your opinion to yourself, if it's not overwhelmingly supportive and in agreement, then keeping your opinion to yourself and just asking, like, how can I help is the best thing you can do. You know, it reminds me of what, uh, when Bob Goff actually did come to Belmont and I was talking to him. He was showing his business cards. And this may be in his book, one of his books, but it just says helper. This is Bob Goff helper. And I always stuck with me. We are called to be helpers. And for those of you that don't know, Bob Goff is a lawyer who gave his law practice away, got up one day and said, here, you can have it to his associate. And he's a writer and we've read a lot of his books or we've talked about it. He wrote Love Does and he also wrote Everybody Always and he just wrote a new book and another one. He's an author now. He's He's an author that really challenges you when you talk about loving like Jesus. Right, It's a stretching book. I mean, he's very blessed to have the resources that he did because that's all, you feel guilty reading what he did. I mean, he literally, what, got on a plane with no plan, flew to, I think it was Sudan. The way I remember him telling it is just, he got on a plane, went somewhere in Africa, I can't remember exactly where, didn't really know what their problems were, but just went to someone who he thought might be important and said, like, how can I help you? Uh, What's one of your problems? And the problem at the time was a lot of innocent boys were being locked up by the fathers of young ladies. You know, in that culture, the, the, the fathers would falsely accuse the young boys of doing something. They'd be arrested so they couldn't harass or form a relationship with their daughters. And because the government there was so broken, they would sit for years just not having a trial. They would just be in jail because someone said they did something. Bob literally got on a plane, flew, asked somebody what he could do, and they said, help free these boys. And so he, he dug up their constitution, which says you can't be in prison for longer than the next number of days, and just took it around and said, look at this, you know, you can't do this. And eventually, you know, they released a bunch of boys. So by that extreme comparison, I haven't done anything like that. But I just think uh, the least we could do is just adopt a uh, helper mindset when people come to us with problems. Mm-hmm. And be willing to ask people without being told what their problems were first. I think it's probably obvious when folks need help, but a lot of us just put our head down and, again, 
I do this just as much, if not more than anybody else. Put your head down and just say, not my problem. And oftentimes I feel like if it's someone who shares a different opinion, a different lifestyle, a different right. political place, For sure. then oftentimes we're anti-help. Right. We become, you talk about adversaries, we become adversaries to the people that we disagree with. That's not the, that's not the goal. I mean, you're right. It, it takes time and enough. I, I have certainly friends from college. Like one of my best friends is an atheist. There's, I think, a good growth that comes from that. It's just getting comfortable enough with someone to say, like, I disagree with you on some very important big things. But as long as you're decent and takes two to tango, which is mm-hmm. hard to come by these days. But the line between ideology and theology is blurred, in my opinion, way too much. People worship one thinking they're worshiping the other. And it's yeah. icky. I don't like it. I don't know. I like to see some young people coming to church and uh, just the the uh, cliche of people going to college and taking a political science class and a history class and then becoming atheist and leaving the church is getting a little old. I feel like every week I'm reading an article, historical low, uh, people acknowledging that they have any kind of faith. Mm-hmm. It's a bummer. Not to say that the church needs to get woke. I think there's a lot of things wrong with middle-of-the-road approaches, best in my mind, but and I don't think being super progressive or super open to social justice issues fixes all problems with people leaving the faith, but definitely not helping. So Brian, we like, our listeners like resources. So mm-hmm. give us your recommendations. Something to watch, something to read, something to listen to on this topic of social justice. Admittedly, I do very few of any of those things. I'm just constantly um, tired. But I would say watch, I think two things, and they're both entertaining. I think both are also on Netflix. One is called 13. It is a documentary that talks about basically the linking between slavery and the modern criminal justice system and the disadvantages built into it for primarily black men. One of my law school professors is a part of that, interviewed in that. Also, and this is more entertaining, but I think it was really illustrative of the disadvantages faced by the indigent and the people who cannot afford good lawyers, even though later on they did have good lawyers, but like, like making a murderer or some of these documentaries that these true crime documentaries, that's a very good one about, you know, maybe, maybe he did it, but the quality of legal representation and how quickly someone can just be manipulated and, and taken advantage of. And again, maybe, maybe they are guilty, but the due process is not there for certain folks who lack the resources to get high-quality counsel right away. So that the latter involves, I think his name is Brendan Massey. You see this a lot in the criminal justice system, a lot on death row, is the IQ of some of these individuals is very, very low, very low. And they are often interrogated without counsel or sort of coached in a way or junk science is used. And it can really, really put them at a disadvantage when it comes to a fair trial. But even like, you know, Brendan Massey in uh, Making a Murderer was interrogated in ways that, you know, as a lawyer you hear are fundamentally unfair. So like, I think they found the woman, when the woman died, she had been, uh, she was, you know, obviously a, a victim of some horrible crime, but she was injured in a, type of, in a type of way that the police were trying to get the young man to admit, take ownership of. I think something having to do with her hair. They took him out of school, I believe without his parents. Interrogation about, you know, what did you do to her hair, Brendan? So it's a leading question. Like, I he wouldn't say anything. You know, if you're a lawyer, like, what are you talking? Planting a seed of something uh, that he may have no knowledge about. But, you know, he goes, I uh, I cut it. No, Brandon, what did you do to her hair? Uh, I 
and pulled it. No, Brandon. So it's just you see these sort of things that happen that can really snowball, lead to very terrible results. And I guess leading to the next thing, what to read, The Death of Innocence by uh, Sister Helen Prejean. She also wrote Dead Man Walking. She's a Catholic nun who's a huge proponent of ending the death penalty, and she wrote a book on people on death row who have been innocent, murdered by our government, who have been almost exclusively low IQ, you know, African-American, or some other disadvantage in the system that it's just sort of horrifying to think uh, about the thought of our government killing somebody who's through what it should be due process for something they didn't do. And then listen, you know, I think I don't really have a whole lot on that one. I, I've enjoyed Bob Coff has a podcast. I don't know if you listen to it. It's not always on so it's very actually rarely on social justice issues, but it's um almost always informative and always positive. Because I feel like it's very easy to start talking about this stuff and it gets so heavy. And I feel like he is uniquely talented at conquering very heavy things, but having a very positive mindset. Uh, I enjoy that. But I mean I yeah, I, I don't really know what else. Everything else is just Frasier. Big Frasier fan. Big Frasier guy. You got any insight, feedback? Want to say something? Thoughts. It's really, really good, and I appreciate it all. I like how you end with let's listen to a little Bob Goff because I do feel like some of this stuff can become so heavy. And I mean, even the social justice aspects, but also when it comes to our opinions, our differing opinions, how we deal with that. Oftentimes when it comes with politics and social justice, the emotions that surround that are not happy, positive, hopeful. And so I love saying, hey, (laughs) you can watch this and read this, but at the end, let's um, let's, let's end your day with some Bob Goff because I think connecting it to our faith and to Jesus is... You know, he is the hope of the world. We look at all of these things and I love the idea of, yes, we look at all of these things and we hope for better. We help for better. And I have lots of thoughts, but. We've got to talk about the thoughts. That's my point. I feel like a lot of, I mean, obviously not here. That's a different time. But I just feel like so many Christian people are like, I help the poor. I go to soup kitchens. I was like, that's the easy stuff. We can all agree, of course, we should help the poor. Of course, we should feed the hungry and and do clothing drives. That should be so obvious that we almost don't need to talk about it. That's very easy. We should just do it. But church, I just feel like generally just does not touch the other things because they are inherently political. I I realize by talking about the death penalty, half the people are probably here like this guy, you know, this guy, (laughs) this guy's more inclined to defend a alleged murderer than a, you know, good county prosecutor, a good police officer. That's not true. A lot of these people are very sick. I think a lot of them never stood a chance. And I think a lot of them should be locked away forever and throw away the key. But by shying away from the overwhelming majority of social justice issues that do have, you cannot avoid a political discussion. You just can't. I feel like that's the trap churches fall into. Let's feed the hungry. Let's clothe the naked. Give money to the poor. All the other stuff, I'm not touching that. Meanwhile, the loudest, craziest among us Christians say vile things and a bunch of young people are like, I don't want anything to do with that. We lose them in droves rather than just learning how to talk about it. Yes. Brian, thanks for coming in and, and talking to us about this important topic and I hope that we all take some time to think about it and look at our own biases and really think about how this plays into our walk with Jesus and and how we're loving people and 
You've given us some great things to think about, and we appreciate your time and your expertise. So make sure you tune in next week for another special guest. Bye. Bye.